Thank you. All right. Uh, the 2017 Schaefer Conference blog, which is on the Dean Bible Ministries website, has been activated. That's where photos will be uploaded. Uh, the video of Dr. Meisinger's announcement of uh, uh, Dr. Woods as the next president of Schaefer Seminary has already been uploaded there. And other news items, announcements, and uh, related things will be posted on that blog. So please check that out. Our next speaker is uh, Mark Musser. Mark, uh, I first met Mark uh, probably about 14 or 15 years ago. At that time, he was in uh, Kiev working with Jim Myers and his ministry there. Previously, he had been in uh, Mogilo in uh, Belarus. He is originally from, uh, you're from Olympia, right? Olympia, Olympia, Washington. Washington. And he went to Evergreen State College and then Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon, where he got his, uh, his MDiv. Uh, he has done an exceptional amount of work dealing with the role of uh, green theology, that is, ecological, the philosophy of the green movement and ecology in its relationship to, uh, to um, the Nazi philosophy and showing how that's related. And he's come up with just some uh, groundbreaking stuff. Um, did you get a chance to talk to them about that any when you were Yad Vashem? I tried, but you tried. Th- okay. he, they whisked him away so quickly okay. I didn't get a chance to talk okay. to him. Yeah. Um, both my wife and I uh, and Tommy Ice were back were at Yad Vashem for a two-week Christian leaders training uh, course on the Holocaust last May, and we recommended Mark to that. We took his books over when we were there in May, and one of the speakers actually didn't remember his name but knew there was somebody who had done that and mentioned it in his lecture. And so we clarified things for him. And so that's uh, called Nazi Oaks, and he's got some books with him. If you haven't read them, you're on the, what, sixth edition now? Uh, no, no, it's the third one. Third, third edition, yeah, third one. okay. So anyway, he is speaking on the battle for the historicity of the Bible, German idealism, theological romanticism, biblical criticism, and postmodern fascism. This is really important. I kept trying to make have him make the title sexy, but we didn't quite get there. You know, that, that's because he never took a homiletics course. <laughs> Actually, I did, but I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember much. You didn't pass it. Yeah, I didn't pass it. Okay. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to turn it over to Mark. Okay. Everybody can hear me okay? So no problem? So, yeah, anyway, um, we're going to talk about some... Is it not up? You can't hear? Is that better? There we go. I can hear an echo. So... We're going to have a very interesting discussion. It's a very difficult subject. I'll do the best I can to talk about this, uh, the German background to the attacks against the Bible. Very important. Um, when I went to Evergreen State College, one of the things that they told me was everything was um, ecologically, of course. My first year, I took a course called Political Ecology, and they were blaming the Christians for everything that was wrong with the ecology because of Genesis chapter 1, man is made in God's image, and so on and so forth, and and uh, man is ruler over nature. This has led to ecological destruction. 
And then along with this, you would also hear about how good the uh, Germans were with regard to upsetting the historicity of the Bible. So you had this stuff kind of going on at the same time. And, you know, the first time I had heard such discussions, I just a young kid uh, starting to learn some Bible. And uh, so anyway, these things, uh, interestingly enough, are, are connected. So as I was doing my study with Nazi Oaks, as I realized the romantic connections to National Socialism, which started out in Romance with Nature, is the idea of romanticism. We're going to get back to the purity of nature, and we're going to purify ourselves by getting back to the original. Uh, this later was hardened in German theology, or I want to call it theology, kind of a philosophy with existentialism, where we value the existence of the earth over uh, any kind of heavenly ideas, especially coming from the Bible, Judeo-Christian values. So they looked at existence, existentialism being more important than human thought, theology, that type of stuff. So you have your romanticism. This becomes hardened by existentialism. Well, as I was doing my study and in research, I realized, you know, there's a, there's a thing called German theological romanticism. There's German existentialism, and I wonder if they're connected. Well, they are. So we're going to take a look at how these things are connected and a uh, very interesting discussion. I think I'll try to make it simple, even though it's very difficult. Uh, part of the reason, if you don't get anything out of my lecture today... Um, We'll reduce it down to this. It was not the reason of the Enlightenment that set aside the historicity of the Bible. Okay, what, what really made it trouble, especially in Germany, was the other things they added on top of that whole discussion. So they accepted the Enlightenment reason. The Enlightenment was true. That They criticized the Bible. The Bible is untrue. It cannot be historically verified. We can't trust it. So they accepted all that. But then what they did, they put all kinds of stuff on top of it. Okay, and that is basically idealism. They put that on top of their criticism of the Bible. Then they put also romanticism on top of the Bible. Now, this is very interesting because one of the things that they always did is they're always reducing things down to the simple Jesus. Okay, okay this is a romantic view of history. Okay, you're trying to simplify things. We want to get back to the country boy that Jesus was and not dress him up with all this theology, see? Okay, this is where all this stuff is really coming from. And then they would, uh, they had little liberalism. By the way, we're going to show how theological romanticism basically is theological liberalism. Okay, what happened in Germany? We have deism, of course, we know in England. was started in, and there's no question that that attack against the Bible began in, in England with the rise of deism, the rise of enlightenment. And but However, what happened in Germany after deism arose is that they replaced deism with theological romanticism. And this was actually far worse it had far bigger impact. It had did more destructive damage to the Bible than deism. And in England, the deists didn't really seem to care that much. Really. Okay, but in Germany, they're going to take these things to their ultimate limit. And then what they're going to do, they're going to use reason to criticize the Bible. And then they're going to say, okay, they come up with their own mysticism to actually counteract it. But, but what it is, is a counterfeit religion. So to replace Christianity. And it even has a eschatological view too we'll take a look at very interesting so hopefully i can help us out here if i'll just do it this way anyway we know from the bible that uh it i'll just get rid of this only if i have to use it the bible is a historical book and historically god revealed himself through his will we see it various times of course in the old testament and god is a he reveals himself historically in of course in context too as wayne was talking about and this is a, a history book but it's not merely bare history. There's a great meaning to that history. And the great problem that a lot of people have is that they cannot believe, okay, that that history has great significance. This, this is the problem. That they'll, they'll actually experience it, maybe, like the Jewish people did when Jesus was on the earth. Okay, he was there. He 
taught them. He did miracles in front of them. They saw the historical Jesus. They were with him. And yet, did this help them? No, they still didn't believe it, see. And we have some of actually similar problems even today. People cannot realize, they don't believe that you can approach God on the basis of his revelation in history. They think there has to be something mystical out there. There has to be some, see, they, they realize that heaven is up there, God's way up there, or whatever it is they believe. They're looking for all their answers outside of history. And then what happens if God comes down inside of history? Of course, that culminates with the coming of Christ. And then people, they stumble over the stumbling stone, which they don't recognize. They're they're looking like this, and they stumble over the rock, which is Jesus Christ. They don't realize that God has revealed himself historically in time. He goes underneath their feet, so they miss out. This is part of the whole problem, see. And so the other problem is that they also don't believe, which was very typical, especially in Enlightenment, that the natural revelation that God, you know, he reveals himself through nature. God made the world. It's a physical world. And he made it real. This is not some imaginary thing that some people seem to think like Nirvana or like the, the Eastern mystics used to believe or even some of the German idealists who emphasized so much that mind was more important than matter. Okay, that type of stuff. The Bible says that God made a real world and that world actually teaches something about the glory of God as Wayne mentioned in Romans chapter one. And that is real communication. Now it's not, you can't, it's silent. We know that from the book of Psalms. It's a silent revenue, but it still communicates and it's still real. And people can't believe that either. And so when they looked at nature, they looked at nature as, as if it was unintelligible. Of course, the romantics tried to dress it up with all, all kinds of environmental ideas about nature. But anyway, they looked at nature as if it did not communicate anything. And then, of course, they added their own subjective ideas on top of that natural revelation that God gave to them. And they just sort of forgot about the actually many things that they can learn. So if we look at the Bible, you can only do this with the Bible, by the way. You can't do this with Hinduism. Okay, you can't do this with Buddhism. You cannot do this with any other religion in the world. The Bible is a very historical religion. So we can start out from the beginning. We can go to the end. We can look at all the historical details and context. We can go verse by verse. We can look at the whole context, whatever it may be. Uh, you can only do this with Christianity. It's because the Bible or Judeo-Christian worldview, only the Bible is a historical book. Even the New Testament letters were written in letters. Okay, they're letters. These are historical documents. That's why we can date those letters. It becomes more difficult with the Gospels because it's more like biographies, narratives. Except for Luke. You can date Luke because of the abrupt ending at the end of the book of Acts. We know Paul was in prison, so we can date the book. And we also know that Luke was written to an individual person. You can start getting those kind of details. You can date things, see. So you can date all these books. Every Old Testament book has a date. Okay, you you know, in the year King Uzziah died, for example, Isaiah, uh, God revealed himself to Isaiah, Isaiah 6, okay, or even Isaiah chapter 1. You know, all the Jeremiah, all these prophets. Okay, there was a time God revealed himself historically in context. Okay, of course. The same is true in New Testament too. So we have these New Testament mystery doctrines, of course, the New Testament church age that are not necessarily flowing out of the, of the Old Testament uh, covenants, but they are attached. We, we do know that. Okay, yet even those are historical because they're written in letters. Okay, and we can date those letters. So it's actually very similar, the divine revelation history. And this is where people have their problems. They look at this, uh, like it's, it's like it's not significant. It's like, you know, they read the Bible. So, you know, they read through different verses and they, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They read that, read that, read that. And they don't. And it's like it's not really they can't realize there's a historical importance here. That God is revealing his will in the midst of everyday life. And this is the problem. They have a hard time believing this. And the German attacks against it will become very vicious. So they're going to attack this whole historical account 
In fact, later on, they're going to recreate the history of the Bible, which is you know, just amazing, according to their own uh, evolutionary views. Okay, so they're going to attack the historicity of the Bible. Then they're going to superimpose their own evolutionary views on top of that. Then they're going to reconstruct the history of that Bible. In fact, one guy is going to turn everything upside down where Moses actually, you know, the book of Deuteronomy, for example, is written last and other books are written first. So it's like a liberal dyslexia of some kind. Uh, they're looking at everything backwards. I, I don't know how this happens, but we'll take a look at that too. So anyway, they're going to, not only do they doubt the historicity of the Bible, but they're going to reconstruct it. And they'll reconstruct it according to their evolutionary grid that they have assumed upon themselves. The Enlightenment is progressing. Uh, we are getting smarter and better, and we understand now that these guys were just a bunch of religionists. They really didn't know what they were talking about. They had no historical consciousness like we do today. And so we're going to understand really what happened and tell you and reconstruct the whole process. So that this is what really <clears throat> happened in Germany in particular. Of course, we know that God reveals himself uh, through special revelation of the Bible. And, of course, we have the prophets and you know Moses, the Old Testament. This all culminates in Jesus Christ. He came once. When that's once for all. He died once, once for all. By the way, this is what makes uh, historical truth very dogmatic in the Bible because Christ eventually is going to culminate so many things into it's a onceness. Also, the Jewish people, it's just one people. This is the other problem a lot of people had, is that especially the Germans, is that they viewed uh, the Jewish history in the Bible as too particularistic. It's, too, it's like too segregated. Truth is too segregated. It can't, it can't be that way. It has to be more universal. So what they wanted to do is get outside of history and get to nature, natural, the, natural theology, but in the process they forgot the, you know, the biblical theology or the biblical revelation. And so now this became the most important thing. Nature is going to become their only guide without the Bible, and then this is what's going to get them in trouble. And then they're going to use this to work against this. And, of course, it's their own views. We'll take a look at how they put in their own mysticism inside of this general revelation, which, by the way, is described in Romans chapter 1 if you look at it carefully. You know, people wake up in the morning. If you don't give glory to God, okay, basically what Paul is saying, there's a hardness of heart that starts to work inside, inside of your thinking, inside of your soul. And at some point, the wheels come off. The judgment of God takes over and people can no longer think straight. And this is what Paul is arguing in, in Romans chapter 1. So God reveals himself in nature and people don't acknowledge it. It's self-evident. Of course, today we have all the, you know, the arguments for God's existence, the cosmological. You, you, know, you argue from uh, the world that God made the world, the teleological. There's a design in nature that's obvious. Okay? Uh, they made these arguments back in the past. You have the ontological, which is the most interesting argument. Uh, you know, the very being of the word God itself suggests that he does actually exist. And then, of course, you have the moral argument for God's, you also have the historical argument. So anyway, these are all what we call general revelation. God reveals himself 24-7 to everybody. Uh, this is without exception. So everybody experiences God through nature. This is, this is, there's no question about this, but that's not salvation, see. Salvation comes through the special revelation of Christ, which culminates in his one-time death on the cross. And so really truth gets concentrated into the person of Christ. And these are real historical events so that our truth, the things that we believe are actually substantive. They're not, they're not empty. They're actual facts. See, with idolatry, it's, it's empty, empty of meaning. People are worshiping idols. They're worshiping things that have no meaning, significance. And yet in the Bible, we have historical information that was written down. Okay? We can read it. And yet so many things just kind of go whew, over people. They just can't accept that God reveals himself historically or even, even in nature as well. So we'll take a look at this. 
The other thing that is, is kind of a problem here as well, modern science was born in Christian Middle Ages under natural theology. Okay, so if we go back uh, to the previous, here we have general revelation, God reveals himself in nature. Well, what was happening? People were learning from God uh, from, through nature. And this helped kick off the scientific revolution. See, they realized that God made a rational world. They realized that God intelligently designed it. So they expected to learn something from nature. So they did. Okay, now today, if you think about it, you know, scientists, they don't, they don't learn. How, how do they learn here? If they don't believe that just the nature is intelligently designed, how can they learn so many things from nature? See, this is a problem. It's an epistemological problem. They, they deny this, okay, but yet they're, they get all mad. You talk about intelligent design, or well, you, you, you're a guy of faith, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, but then how do you learn so much from nature if it's not intelligently designed? It's, it's a huge problem. And really what's happened is that a lot of people think that nature no longer teaches anything. They think it's wild and woolly and has no significance in terms of teaching people anything that's significant. Or it's irrational. That's the problem. Nature is irrational. And so a lot of their irrational ideas have come from the fact that they have superimposed uh, irrational views on nature upon this natural revelation of God. So a lot of the madness you see going on in our society, especially with the green movement, okay, it's, it's reduced down to that fact. They believe that nature is irrational, Okay, and so we're going to pass irrational policies wrapped around. Uh, okay, this is how it works. Okay, and see, all this stuff was learned very well in Germany, especially in Germany. Uh, here's a quote from somebody that uh, talked about a liberal theology. Very good, uh, Gary Dorian. He's a he's a fan of a German liberal theology. That's the only trouble. But I, I've read through most of his book. A very interesting book, to say the least. The name of his book is this. It's called Kantian Idealism and Hegelian Spirit. The Idealistic Logic of Modern Theology. And this is what he says in a quote here. Liberal theology was born in largely illiberal context in the 18th century Germany and England. Now, he's already covered himself right there because there's a lot of illiberal things that these guys were doing. And one of them was their romanticism, which we'll take a look at uh, with Schleiermacher. A lot of these original liberals were romantics. And the romantics were also, you know, they had a love affair with nature. And, of course, the idea of feelings are more important than truth. Okay, this is part of the whole discussion, which laid the foundation for theological liberalism. And the other thing that they did is that they uh, started to get beyond, of course, text. And they want to look beyond, um, beyond a biblical text, for sure, to look for meaning. They, they found it in feelings. They found it in will, you know, this type of stuff, rather than human thought. So, again, liberal theology was born largely in illiberal context in the 18th century Germany and England a fact that helps explain why much of it was far from liberal. Okay. Most of the great thinkers in this story were Germans. The key founding fathers were Germans, and there was a virtual intellectual movement of liberal theology in Germany for a century before a similar movement existed in Britain. For better and for worse, German thinkers dominated modern theology right up to the point that liberal theology crashed and burned, which, by the way, occurred in World War I. I mean, their, their ideas about progress were basically destroyed by what happened in the war. And then Karl Barth is going to be, we'll take a look at him, was very uh, upset with all of his theology professors because they got taken in by German nationalism. See, a lot of the Romantics were nationalist. They believed that Germany was on top of the religious totem pole, philosophical totem pole. They were the smartest and the best, and they had these, ad these ideas. And so the Romantics were also nationalist. And so what Barth did is he realized that these guys were not really liberals, they're a bunch of Romantics. Okay, so anyway, uh, we, there's a lot of terminology that gets thrown out, liberals, romanticism, all kinds of stuff. Uh, this is a problem we, that we always have, uh, wordsmithing. 
I'll keep reading. For better and for worse, German thinkers dominated modern theology right up to the point the liberal theology crashed and burned, after which the field was still dominated by the intellectual legacies of, of Immanuel Kant, uh, Hegel, Fred, Frederick Schlumacher, I probably don't pronounce these names correctly, and the Richelieu School. So that they're, they're all German. So you know, think about all the people you can think of. They're some of the most significant with regard to philosophy in particular, even religion. Most of them are Germans. Okay, Karl Marx, where is he from? He's from Germany. Now he's, of course, a, you know, he's an atheist. You have Immanuel Kant, where is he from? He's from Germany. Okay, you have Schlermacher, where is he from? He's from Germany. Okay, you have uh, Bauer, F.C. Bauer. He started doubting the historicity of the New Testament and, and reorganized it, restructured it. Who, where is he from? He's from Germany. You have Ritual, where is he from? He's from Germany. He started what we call historicism, where he's going to historicize the Bible, make it relative to its own time, and we don't have to pay attention to it today so much. Uh, you know, we've progressed beyond it. We can learn some things from the Bible, but we've gone beyond it too. And God, the Spirit, is continued to teach us through our progress. This is what we call historicism, very interestingly enough, uh, even though they think it's super uh, scientific, but it's, that's really not the case. Hegel, where is he from? He's from Germany. Okay. Uh, Harnack, we'll talk about him. Where is he from? He's from Germany. Okay, these guys are all from, uh, many of them from Germany. And they played the most decisive role with regard to what's going on in modern theology, even today, even though these guys are dead, they're still dominating uh, many of the discussions. And just as I, you know, I was at Evergreen State College 30 years ago, and these guys were talking about these different theological professors from Germany. So again, modern science was born in Christian Middle Ages under natural theology. Interesting, here is a German uh, scientist. He said, every, a mathematician actually, every unbiased mind must admit that the age in which the chief development of the science of mechanics took place was an age of predominantly theological caste. So notice the idea of mechanics. We're going to learn something from nature. They realize that God made a rational world, intelligently designed. We're going to learn something. And they develop mechanics based on that. Today, we have all kinds of scientists today looking at cells. They've, they, you know, they scrape the bottom of the barrel. They're looking really deep inside of those cells. And they're like living machines, plus the communication that's going on. Remember, Jesus, uh, he made the world in and, and, uh, Hebrews chapter 1. And he, uh, by the word of his power, so these things, they are actually looking right at, right in their faces. They're looking at intelligent design. They're seeing it. And yet they still cannot bring themselves to believe that God made an intelligent world. But that's what they used to think. That's what started the scientific revolution was they realized, look, at God made a rational world. We can understand it. And uh, therefore, they started to play around with uh, natural revelation and learn from it. Another good one uh, here that we have Alfred North Whitehead. Faith in the possibility of science is an unconscious derivative of medieval theology. So science was born uh, with the monks in the Christian Middle Ages. Medieval scientists, they presume God created a rational world ruled by rational laws that were intelligently designed. That really is the heart of what started the scientific enterprise. As soon as you remove this, you've got all kinds of problems. All kinds of problems. And now if nature is unruly, if nature's you know, can't teach me anything, if it really is un unintelligible, then why is it they're learning so much from nature? It's, 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 it's a problem. It's a big one. The other problem is that nature has fallen, right? So they, they look at a fallen nature and they say, well, how could God have created that? How could God make something crooked? Okay, well, that's what the Bible says. God did make it crooked on purpose. It's in the book of Ecclesiastes. Futility, Solomon talks about. Paul even talks about in Romans 8. He read Ecclesiastes, apparently. So nature is subjected to futility. And so when they saw that futility in nature, see, as they investigate things without looking at the Bible, saying the Bible already talked about that, without looking at that, they realized that, okay, so they, or they, I shouldn't say they realized that they started to say that God didn't create it. See, it's futile. 
nature is unruly. It's irrational. Then they started to base their philosophies upon this, their religions upon this, and then then it gets really uh, very dangerous. Uh, Plato, for example, Aristotle's teacher, criticized the idea of verification by experimentation. Says one of the reasons why you can't have uh, science in those days. You got your philosophies that you know they're they're not uh, open to it. Erasmus, he said, uh, as he was a Catholic Christian humanist, he said the ancient Greeks had too much piety to search out with profane curiosity the secrets of nature, to investigate the dimensions, motions, influences of the stars, or even the searching for hidden causes and things. This is like a sacrilege. But see, Christianity removed that sacrilegious concern because God made the world and God is separate from that world. He's above it. So when you study into nature, when you start tinkering around inside of the cells, so to speak, you're not tinkering with God. It's not a problem. But if you look at the ancient Greeks who had a very pantheistic view of the world, you start fooling around with nature, okay, you're, you're stabbing God, see. So the Christian worldview freed up the scientist to study at his heart's content without any problem. He's not attacking God's person anyway because he's separate from it see so all these ideas are, are there and this is what helps get the scientific revolution kicked off and then within a matter of a couple hundred years the scientific revolution is going to be turned on its head to attack Christianity very interesting uh, Protestant Francis Bacon developed scientific empiricism the idea we're going to verify things through studying things you know we, we observe them Okay, that was his whole point. Interesting. Scientific knowledge is based on action. Now, this is kind of a problem here. Action, process, and change, not thought or contemplation. Okay, well, why is our modern scientific culture so mindless today? It's because right here, people are expecting too much from science, and science actually reduces things. It says that's what it does. That's what secularization is all about. You reduce things down to its bare minimum. It's like a form of romanticism. You, you re- reduce it down to its primitive form so you can so you can use it. See? And this helped develop mechanics so they can have control over it. You've got to simplify it to control it. See? Okay. And the process, they denuded or they took away thought. So what matters really is action and change. What you think about it is really not the point. It's practical. It's pragmatic, right? So that's where a lot of this stuff, you know, see, it's a form of reductionism. That's what scientific enterprise is all. It reduces things. And we're going to see this as a, a problem. It just gets bigger and bigger. They continue to reduce things all the time. And this will become a bigger problem when you start doing this with philosophy and theology. You know, it's okay if you want to reduce, uh, get rid of the superstition. I understand that. That's, what, that's obviously, idolatry is a problem. Superstitious thinking is very dangerous. You start doing this the Bible and you're going to be in trouble. But they, they did it to both. In fact, they treated the Bible as if it was superstitious. Science is thus based on reductionism or stripping away of thought, what we call secularization. Scientific knowledge is based on a repetitive experimentation and or experience, but again, it's all based on process and action. It's very mindless, really, in a lot of ways. I mean, you, you, of course, you have to put things together. You've got a scientific minds. You're very smart. But there's a lot of mindlessness that goes on in this whole process. They're reducing everything down to a level where they can control it. See, what they should be saying is that, look, at even when I reduce nature down to its bare minimum and I can start controlling these aspects that are there, I'm still learning a ton from God. See, that's what they should be saying. But that's not what happened. What happened is that they became so arrogant, they started to um, glorify the fact that, look, at uh, clouds, for example, that they may be beautiful up there in the sky, but really it's just a bunch of water molecules up there. See, they're just suspended up in the atmosphere. 
See, the scientist reduces explanations. Now, that, that's true. Okay, but it's more than that. Okay, there's, there's something more to that cloud than merely water being suspended up there in the atmosphere. Okay. And so they reduce uh, that cloud down to scientific discussions. But it, it minimizes, you know, it actually it puts a, um, it's like taking clothes off. You know, you're, you're, you're getting things down to a very bare discussion here. Not much thought. See. See. Not much thought's going on here. It's a, it's a problem. <laughs> Which is what happens usually in those types of situations. Okay. Uh, a good relationship between science and, and... This is historically rare. You know, I think today ICR might have the best that we've seen historically in the church with regard to how science and, and should work together with, with, uh, with nature and with science and with the Bible. And they just did not have it. Science and grace, you know... Uh, what happened with scientists very quickly in the Middle Ages is that they uh, are going to start saying they become so smart, of course, above God, above God's revelation, that they're going to start ignoring the Bible, and they're going to turn that natural theology into naturalism. And they're, so now we study these scientific laws, and they look at these rational laws that God has created by his providence, or whatever you want to call this, and then they're going to start saying that you cannot violate those laws with miracles. So therefore, the miracles we see in the Bible did not happen. Okay, so that this is where all this stuff comes from. So they, it's like they, they understood that God made a rational world that we can understand, and then they turn around and say, well, then God can't do miracles anymore, even though a lot of these guys originally believed that God made the world. Deists, for example, believed that God created the world, but they did not believe that he could do miracles or that he did do miracles. But that's, that's inconsistent. Look, if God is powerful enough to create the world, can he not also do miracles in the world? Of course, the answer is yes. Any, any logical uh, presumption would assume that. But the, no, they said, no, no, God went fishing someplace. So he walked away, that's the, you know, our watchmaker. He wound up the watch and let it go. And then the idea that you are to, uh, God gives you freedom to make the best out of life that uh, you want it to be. All the, uh, these things are they're fantasies, of course. But anyway, that's how they viewed things. So again, uh, historically rare to have a good relationship between science and nature. Medieval natural theology was converted to deism and naturalism. So deism is the idea that God made the world and then walked away from it. So they did believe that God created the world, but he did not you know, intervene into, na into nature. He didn't intervene into the affairs of men. He did not intervene into history. And of course, if you have that view, then this cuts out the Bible. There's no miracles. God did not reveal himself historically. Uh, so when you look at the Bible, the Bible is just sort of a book that religious guys, religious geniuses came up with you know, a little bit here and there. That's how they viewed it. But now... We're really smart now. Look at look at what we've done scientifically. And so what they're doing is that knowledge has increased, especially in our era. And they started looking back on the past as if these people of the past weren't very smart. And they started to arrogate themselves above uh, other past generations and started to judge them on, on the basis of that kind of thinking. And, you know, I, I was in Israel here. First time I've been there just a, a couple months ago. And the thing that, I, that really struck me, especially when we look at the Western Wall, but also Caesarea, is how actually contemporary I think the world was when Jesus walked. The, it was not this primitive place that a lot of people made it out to be. That's a romantic view of history. Okay, it, it's, it's this idea of progress is real problematic. We'll, we'll take a look and I'll explain why uh, really even progress comes out of a biblical world worldview. Uh, here's now here's one of the first deists to start criticizing the Bible, of course, uh, in a very serious way. He was not published, however. This is part of the problem with a lot of this stuff. They were scared because you have the you know the, the Christian worldview here. Uh, these guys they write books, and of course, how are they going to be teaching if the state won't allow them to do this? Uh, so a lot of these guys kept things hidden, and he did. Uh, his things were not really published until after he died. 
But he was a German deist who began the skeptical search for the historical Jesus, which is a romantic search for the simple Jesus without theology. So they, they looked at all these New Testament letters, Paul and, and Peter, they just theologized about Jesus, added all kinds of extra unnecessary things that had nothing to do with the simple country boy preacher that Jesus was. Okay. So they just removed that content. It's gone. We're looking for the... We, we know that those times were primitive back then and, and we know that miracles didn't happen. So there's no way that uh, these things are true concerning the, the New Testament or even the Old Testament too. He believed Jesus promised his followers the kingdom of God was imminent, but when it did not materialize after he was crucified, the disciples cunningly postponed it indefinitely, uh, claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead and had gone to heaven. So Andy, do you have anything to say about that? By the way, dispensationalism answers this problem. There's a lot of guys got wrapped up in this. You look at the Gospels, okay, you look at the New Testament, it's the kingdom's coming now. It didn't come. Okay, why not? Well, because of dispensations, that's why. 69th, uh, 7 of Daniel, okay, that's been done, but not the 70th. We're still waiting. It's been postponed. And then God inserted the church in between the times. You could explain that problem dispensationally. But a lot of guys said, look, this is all, it's all the Bible, therefore, is a fairy tale. Because they didn't understand Andy's book. See? <laughs> he believed there was a big discrepancy between the historical Jesus that is depicted in the Gospels and the Jesus that is seen in the New Testament epistles, uh, most of which is pure theology attributed to the historical Jesus. He wrote in a deistic apology called The Rational Worshipper of God, but did not have it published. His radical skepticism was later published by another guy, uh, Lessing. We'll take a look at him. So anyway, uh, this was a, a view that's been around a long time. Okay, and Remaris had a very uh, exceptional view of this that really developed again in Germany. Now we go from Lessing. He's a little bit later. He's going to be the guy that publishes his stuff. And he, he, he'll act like a dumb guy that didn't, I just found these things in the library and so he published them, and this created a huge firestorm in Germany. I mean, it's just gigantic, which is what Lessing wanted. And Lessing's very similar to Remaris, even though he never admitted it. Uh, but he, uh, his whole point was to divide biblical history from faith. That's what he's going to do. And he's going to use Remaris's book to help cultivate that. So Lessing was a German critic, philosopher. Notice the dramatist. Here we have our Hollywood. He had some uh, dramas, by the way, about the Crusades that were not good goodly painted toward Christians, even back then. He was a Lutheran who studied Lutheran orthodoxy before following the Enlightenment, becoming a deist. So again, a lot of these guys, interesting, they grew up in state churches. A lot of these churches are, are dead already by that time. And this is a problem. You know, They learn the dead orthodox system and then they just reject it. And then they want to get into their own mysticism, which is more exciting. And of course, granted, I understand. Uh, so it didn't help uh, what was going on with orthodox. There's a lot of legalism too. Uh, a lot of the, if you start take a look at what's going on, a lot of these guys, why they reject is because of the legalism of their churches. This was a problem. Okay, so they rejected it. They wanted freedom, but then they rejected the Bible in the process, which Jesus says the truth shall make you free. It's the Bible that makes you free. The Bible teaches against legalism, see. But they started to thinking that the Bible itself was legalistic. A lot of people think that even today. Same kind of a problem. He is famous for Lessing's ditch, which divides faith from history. So he's going to create a ditch between faith and history you can't cross. And later on, you know, remember, you've heard of the leap of faith uh, stuff with Kierkegaard. See, that they're jumping over Lessing's ditch. See, how do we get from history to faith? Well, you can't. 
So they tried to, the leap of faith, you do it by faith, of course, and, and it's a leap of faith without thought. So again, it's a, it's mind, it's a mindless operation. They're denuding thought. They're getting rid of any kind of uh, serious thought about things. This is the problem. Uh, he denied the miraculous truth of the biblical history can be used to make truthful statements since there is no modern proof of miracles in the Bible. This amounts to reasoning power without proof. That was his argument. Interestingly, he died a pantheist. So it's like in his own... His own, in fact, he went back to Spinoza, apparently. Uh, so he started out a deist, and he, he adopted Spinoza's pantheism. Someone's going to talk about pantheism and Spinoza later on uh, this week. But So he died that way, sort of like a little picture of where Germany is going, where it started, where it ended up. Started out with deism and ended with pantheism. And Lessing is the guy to illustrate that. Again, the leap of faith mentality that developed in European religious thought was across Lessing's ditch. He believed the historical truth cannot be used to establish the necessary truths of reason, which are universal and not particularistic like history. See, again, history is too particularistic. It's too segregated. Truth has to be universal. But the Bible has both covered in the sense that God reveals himself, right? The Bible says God reveals himself in nature. Okay, that's universal. At the same time, God reveals himself particularly in the coming of Christ, Old Testament. So actually, we have both things covered. It's just we don't get credit for it. Then we have Immanuel Kant, who's going to follow Lessing. In fact, they, were, they lived in the same city. They knew each other. They were friends. And uh, this guy is very difficult to get your head wrapped around. Uh, the more I studied him, the more I looked at him, and the more I read what others said about him, the more I realized that part of the problem is that he's actually irrational in a lot of ways. <laughs> and he was looking at things backwards. This was part of the whole, the whole German operation, is that they're going to be very strict, Logic-wise, at least in their eyes, when it comes to the history of the Bible, but then they'll be very loose with regard to their own views of what they put in its place. And what Kant's going to do is a lot of reductionism with regard to philosophy. So he's going to reduce uh, metaphysics, or you want to call it that, beyond you know that beyond physics. He can, he's going to reduce theology down to what we call bare reason, which is one of his books, title of his books, for example. So he was secularizing the Bible to make it reasonable. In the process, a lot of content was cut out okay and then what happens is you have a lot of thoughtlessness that goes on in the process which he didn't seem to think about was a problem yet his books are unbelievable i mean he's written books galore uh you know 20 30 books on on his whole discussion with his philosophy that are very rich on content and yet what's he doing he is denying knowledge in fact he actually says that i got a quote here from from him and how he did this i have therefore found it necessary to deny knowledge of course he's talking about especially biblical knowledge because he viewed that stuff, that kind of knowledge is beyond you. You cannot know that. Okay, there's a skepticism toward truth, you know, in this whole way of thinking. And he says here, I have found this to deny knowledge in order to make room for faith. So, in the one sense, it's like he wants to protect uh, religion. That was sort of his idea. The dogmatism of metaphysics—that is, the preconception that it's possible to make headway in the metaphysics without a previously criticism of pure reason is a source of all that unbelief, always very dogmatic, which wars against morality. So what he wanted to do was reduce uh, reason down to what we can understand. And then we'll base our metaphysics upon that. The problem is, in the process, he secularized everything and took out the most important stuff, which is our theological content that is the basis for our faith that is actually rooted on those historical facts, which Lessing, of course, denied. Kant is the father of transcendental idealism. Uh, I'll try to explain that if I can, versus Berkeley's subjective uh, immaterial realism. By this, I mean that Berkeley, he believed that the world, the real world we live in, is 
like an illusory, you know, it's a reflection of the mind of God. It's really not exactly necessarily real. It's all a part of the mind of God. So with Kant, he said, look, at no, nature is real, and I, I don't think it's immaterial at all. But what Kant said is that that nature by itself doesn't mean anything. Okay, there's nothing there that it doesn't communicate anything. It's not our natural revelation from God. It's not necessarily created by God as far as we know. We, don't, we can't know those things because we're too limited to know such things. All right. So he's going to take away the meaning of nature and he's going to reduce it down to what we can know from our purely reasonable point of view. And again, the process, he's going to remove natural theology from nature. So nature becomes something barely intelligible. And then what you can, you can kind of put your own meaning on top of that. See, <laughs> this becomes part of the whole program. And subjectivism is what he's going to do. And what he's going to do, he's going to take, uh, interestingly enough, they're still transcendental. So that's, you know, the, 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 but by this we don't mean that they are trying to uphold God's transcendence. What they're trying to do is uphold man's transcendence, his reason over over uh, nature, which is interesting. They, they still recognize that people have to uh, have some kind of transcendental thinking here. So what he's going to do is he's going to, we, we, we see that chart down here? Not very well. It's too too blurry. Anyway, I'll try to explain this if I can. It's very difficult. But Kant said, when you look at the object, okay, which is the object, nature, you cannot know the thing in itself, what its inner essence. You can only know the appearance of it. You really can't know the, the theology, for example, behind it. You cannot know the philosophy that there's no inner uh, deep thing about it. It's just bare nature. And so what we only know are the appearances. So he reduces, again, all thought down to that level of what we can know through experience of nature, which is, again, very limited. And again, in the process, what's happening is that they're cutting out all kinds of ideas along the way. So they, uh, they want to elevate themselves above the natural world, but in the process, uh, it's a very subjective interpretation of that natural world. This is what happens in their thinking. And really, it's idealism. It's, it's, it's an idea they have. It's not really necessarily reflective of a reality because they're putting on nature their own views of what they think these things are. So Kant wanted to protect philosophy and religion from being destroyed through empiricism by limiting reason. So what's happening is that they, you know, we talk about um, experience, okay? It's a problem we have in theology. We don't want someone's religious experience to ruin my theology. Because this is happening all the time in our in our in our Christian circles today. Someone has a super spiritual experience, which is always better, much better than mine. I mean, mine, mine are rock bottom. You know, I just I've got nothing going for me. And these people have the best super experiences you can imagine. Okay, and so that experience dominates the discussion. And so Kant is trying to say, look, there's a problem here, guys. We, we it, see. The, the empiricism of science was starting to the point where their experience was dominating everything. And then not only that, is that nature is kind of ugly a lot of times. So it kind of takes away all the aesthetics, you know. Okay, It takes away the beauty of, I mean, even though nature is beautiful, but there's still a lot of ugliness that goes on in nature. And so it kind of ruins all of my, my pretty philosophy, see. So he's trying to save philosophy from being ruined by pure experience. Okay. So this is going to be his scheme that he comes up with to try to solve this problem. What he's going to do, he will divide the subjective knower from the object in a complicated scheme that allowed autonomous reason to actually prevail. What does that say? Prevail over the, over the implacability of the real experiential world that often sullies idealism in the sense that uh, everyday experience ruins our theories. It does. Okay, look at the history of the Bible. It ruins our theology. 
very often you look at a biblical text, something happened historically in the Old Testament, New Testament that actually calls into question our theology, see. So there's like a historical empiricism in the Bible that works against our overarching theological views that sometimes are not true to the text, see. So how do we save our theology? How do we save our, our philosophy if scientific experience is dominating everything? So this is what he's trying to do. But see, the, process, the problem was is he's going to take away content in order to, to solve the problem, which actually leads to bigger problems. Kant viewed both natural theology and the Bible and its history as heteronomous, which means uh, other law. So we have autonomous means myself, I rule. Heteronomous means it's other rule. So he looked at the Bible. He looked at nature, the natural theology of the Christian Middle Ages as heteronomous, which it rules over me. So he wanted to be a subjective idealist in order to overcome some of these problems, what he viewed to be this empiricism that actually ruined things. And of course, historical empiricism of the Bible is something that bothers him too because it takes away from his philosophy. Uh, religion is fine as long as it does not use rationalistic natural theology to uh, substantiate itself as such knowledge is beyond reason and therefore cannot be objectively known. So he, again, he reduces knowledge. You cannot know those things. You, you can't argue from a natural theology that God exists because we can't know those things. So again, he's reducing the whole point of what we can know. Science is good as long as it does not become too dependent upon natural theology. So he's trying to save uh, philosophy from science as well. And that the scientific empiricism does not devolve into determinism. This is a, He already saw the problem of determinism where man just becomes a machine. And nature just becomes a machine. I mean, the, the whole mechanics, this is coming out of the Christian Middle Ages. So this becomes also very deterministic. And Kant wanted to be free from those things. So he wants to be free from natural theology which he thought was leading to scientific determinism. He wanted to be free from the biblical text as well, uh, because we have all these dogmatic assertions from theologians, they don't know what they're talking about, and that prevents me from living a free life. Okay, So this is part of his whole thinking. So I try to reduce it down to that level. However, he's very complicated, it, it, but it's a scheme. Okay, it, it's, it's a pyramid scheme of some kind. I mean, this, it, it's, a, it, it's very complicated. You sit there and, you know, it's mind-numbing. Uh, Kant's idealism removed much theological content from both uh, morality and metaphysics since such content was largely presumed to be unknowable, which led to really a continuum uh, secularization of the Bible and further led to an emptying of the mind. So the idea of secularization, we're taking away content. And so now for you to be moral, for example, okay, the, all the content's removed. And of course, that's where all the grace is provided so that you can be moral for one thing. And secondly, the glory of God, that's all removed again because... Uh, he has reduced it down to bare reason, okay? And there's really, it, it's a really a, a, a naked form of thinking that leads to all kinds of problems. And I would argue that he has done the opposite. He took away all the theological content, so now we have a lot of mindless people walking around today. He did the exact opposite of what he presumed he was doing, which is going to be true of a lot of German thinkers as we go along the way. So whatever we can think about Kant, and uh, you know, you can read it in my paper. It's 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 a very complicated process, but regardless. What happens is we have a reductionism of thought, especially metaphysically or especially when it comes to the Bible, especially theology. That stuff is cut out. He was also anti-Semitic, by the way. This is, a, this is the big problem. Uh, the process, he was anti-Semitic as he viewed the Jews as an empirical obstacle that needed to be euthanized. So he's looking at that historical text of the Bible Historical empiricism, we see these real events that happened historically in the past with Jewish people, very segregated, 
you know, uh, it's a very particularistic history, okay? He viewed that as something needs to be euthanized. So it's his own words. So we're going to euthanize. So his whole philosophy really is, is, is basically rooted on that whole idea is to euthanize this whole Jewishness. And notice here, he needed to be euthanized in order to establish a rational European order in which um, biblical heteronomy is overcome. It's going to, you know, we get rid of all this other law from the Bible. Let's get rid of this natural theology from the Christian Middle Ages. We, we want to be autonomous. That was the point. We have to euthanize the Jewish operation here. He was also a white supremacist, by the way. Oh, I could talk about that too. I, we don't have time. And he was also progressive. But think about this, okay? Uh, where do we get the idea of progress? It comes from the Bible. Okay, it comes from the Old Testament, New Testament. We start out in the Old Testament. We, you know, we go to the New Testament. We start out with Abraham. He's in the tents, right? And we wind up in union with Christ in the New Testament. So the Bible is a very progressive book, at least from its own point of view. But God is the one who does this, not man. See, God's grace is what provides the progress, not people. God's word is what provides the power behind it to get his plans done and God's reason in his plan and not what people are doing. The problem is they confuse what they were doing with what God was doing, which is typical. You know, they're doing their own thing and, and then saying to God, you know, that they were part of God's plan. So anyway, the idea of progress comes from the Bible itself. So, but what they did, they secularized this view of history and then they attribute it to themselves. So now man is progressing all by himself. And, of course, if you think about this, okay, where are we going here? Well, God has a plan here. It's all based on the resurrection of the dead, see, if you think about it. See, if man progresses here and makes the goal, okay, what about if somebody dies here, right? Okay, what about if somebody dies here? Or, you know, what about everybody that ever lived? What are we going to do about those people? Is it just... It's just See, so the whole point of progress really demands the resurrection of the dead because why should I care about somebody else that's going to enjoy uh, Never Never Land in the future? Maybe my kids, it might be nice for them, maybe my grandkids, but beyond that, that's it. So really the progressive view of history demands a resurrection of the dead. It demands a biblical worldview that's all tied around those things too. So they adopted this secularization of the progress that we see in the Bible. They secularized that. They reduced it down to its bare minimum. And then we have really progress for no reason without resurrection, without any hope, without anything. So man is just progressing, but it's, it's meaningless. Then we have, of course, uh, Goethe. He was a romantic. And what's going to happen is that uh, Kant, of course, is going to he's going to reduce uh, thought, okay? He's going to take away uh, the idea of metaphysics or theology. And we can only know certain things. And then what's going to happen is that people are going to add Romanticism, okay, like Goethe, uh, or different views of spiritual ideas, different types of mysticism, uh, to fill in the background what what Kant took away. So this is what happens in Germany: is that Kant reduces the, the knowledge, and then people will come in and fill in the background with their own mysticism, and this is where all the dangers were. Uh, Goethe, of course, is romantic, and the idea was. Uh, separateness is the illusion, one and many the same, very very holistic in their view, and by that they mean they re, they get God out of the picture. They look at everything from a holistic point of view from nature. God no longer plays a part. It's just what we experience today in nature. Romanticism emphasizes an indigenous nationalism. This is the other problem, our own country. So if you get rid of God, you get rid of universal values, okay? For example, Judeo-Christian values gave us the melting pot. People sort of forget about their culture. They, you know, they, they become... 
part of Judeo-Christian ethic, of course, which is not indigenous. It comes from the outside. It comes from God. They got rid of those ideas, and what are you left with? Indigenous ideas, uh, multi-tribalism, which is what I call multiculturalism. It's, it's, not, it's, not, uh, it's not the melting pot. And, of course, nationalism gets wrapped around those things too, at least initially. So the romantic, uh, they wanted to be uh, romantically tied indigenously to the land, and this is a very nationalistic enterprise. This is what romanticism was all about, and they're in their own country, their own land, their own natural view of things, apart from this overarching heteronomy, you know, this other world on the outside which tries to rule over me. I don't want that. Romanticism became fascinated with biology because it exemplified holism and organic independence. You look at nature, it's very inter interdependent. So they love that stuff. Of course, the Bible also teaches man is made in God's image. He's above nature, so he's not necessarily holistically dependent or to be ruled by nature. He's above nature. He's the governor of the universe. Romanticism was filled with anti-Semitism, and this is why a lot of national socialists were also caught up with this whole discussion. Notice Goethe once said uh, about the Old Testament, again, Jew it's Jewish nonsense. Had Homer remained our Bible, how different a form mankind would have achieved. Well, that's, that's the truth. Yes. But again, this anti-Semitism is a part of the whole discussion. Now here we have Schlermacher. Uh, he is the father of what we call theological liberalism, but he was a very strong nationalist romantic during Napoleon's invasion. So here we have this, you know, they, they looked at, they loved France, you know, with regard to the Enlightenment, but then Napoleon came and they didn't like that. Okay. But anyway, they're very nationalistic and they very Germany, you know, the fatherland, these things all were born at this time. And that this was his part of his thinking too. He was actually a, um, a military chaplain. I mean, he was had a you know he was trained in the army. Uh, he's going to take Goethe's Romanticism, and then he's going to take Kant's Idealism, and then he's also another guy, a deistic uh, historian, you know, philosopher historian, to dejudaize the Bible. That's going to be his big operation. He's going to, he's going to get rid of the Jewish elements of the Bible because what he wants to do is get beyond Judaism, so that we can progress. That was the idea. That's what they were thinking. See, this, this Old Testament stuff is old, and it's preventing us from growing. It's too particular. It's too segregated. This history is it's not, it's not universal enough, and it's keeping, it's keeping us down. That's how they viewed things. And, of course, uh, Kant said you could not know the thing in itself, okay, right, that stood behind nature. In fact, he said it was bare, meaning. So now what's going to happen after Kant is that everybody's going to try to figure out what that thing in itself was. Okay. And so they're going to, uh, with the Schlumacher, it's going to be feeling. And by the way, they're not being inconsistent with Kant because Kant basically said that the thing is unintelligible, so it's irrational. Nature by itself is irrational. The object you study is irrational by itself. And so people, is gonna, they're going to start filling in what they want. And so with regard to Schlumacher, he's going to teach that uh, feeling is more important. Feeling, intuition, spiritual experiences was more important than uh, doctrinal creeds, thus the theological romantics. So now, again, the idea of religious experience become very important with Schlumacher. So now they're going to sort of undo the things that Kant was trying to stop. But at the same time, they're building on Kant because Kant is contradictory in many ways. Uh, he was defending religious based on nature or his own natural theology, not Christianity against the rationalism of the Enlightenment. So now, see, he's trying to protect religion from being destroyed by the Enlightenment, okay? because that's what the Enlightenment did, getting rid of all religion. So he's going to try to... They already accept the Bible's no good, but now we need to protect our own religion, his religion, natural theology, and since his beliefs were not based on the history of the Bible, he doesn't have a problem. 
See, he just becomes a mystic. See, my, my, my faith is based on things that are not connected to the real world. So you can criticize them all you want to. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fantasy. Okay, but that's where these guys are. That's what they're trying to protect themselves. I mean, I wish I could have that kind of protection. You know, it just doesn't work. Uh, religious feeling brought a holistic communion with God through experiential knowledge rather than theoretical or theological knowledge. So that was the whole point. Uh, they wanted to have communion with God, whatever they defined that to be. And of course, it's very esoteric in their views about God. Now, here's he's actually the father of hermeneutics. That's wonderful, at least in modern sense. Okay, Schlermacher. And the problem is, is he takes is all this romanticism he puts into the whole, see, that he distorts uh, hermeneutics because he's going to put his romantic ideas about natural theology up into his hermeneutical circle. So his view and how he interprets the Bible is going to be really strange because he in, he's going to do it with a romantic uh, theological viewpoint. He is the father of modern hermeneutics, the, the hermeneutical circle. He, he defined that, uh, which was holistically and romantically and idealistically understood. So the, the, you know, we talk about the hermeneutical circle, which is true as far as we know, but that comes from romanticism, which is, again, the circle. Okay, it's holistic. That's the idea. Interesting. He divided language from meaning by limiting the ability of language to express itself. So he's going to be the guy. He does this a long time ago. A lot of guys are into this today, but he did this a long time ago. So just like Kant said, you cannot know the thing in itself, right? There's a limit what we can know. So now he's going to limit language. It can't express. It's very limited what it can do. They're also very subjective. He then filled in the limits of language with romantic intuition and feeling, free from dogmatism, since language itself is legalistic to express true spirituality. So now what he's saying is that language itself is so limited, it's also legalistic. It, it cannot really express spiritual things. There's a partial truth in that. We know Romans 8, the Holy Spirit groans. You know, Wayne mentioned that already, with words that we don't understand or know, things that are unintelligible, at least to us. But that doesn't mean we become irrational. See, this is the problem. God may be beyond reason, but we don't become irrational in the process. See? The Trinity, we might not be able to explain it, but does that, is that in the license to become irrational? The answer is no. But people have used that as, an, as a license to do that. So again, he filled in the limits of language with romantic feeling. Language only gave the appearance of thought, but did not express the true nature of thought. Language is both subjective and restrictive. His favorite verse, of course, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And his idea was that the Bible kills things, okay, but the Spirit, apart from the Bible, gives life. A lot of Christians hold this view today, too. As soon as you start talking the Bible, it's a glaze goes everybody's eyes, and you know it's just amazing how this happens. I've just, I just notice this in the ministry everywhere I go. You teach the Bible, and just kind of people start, and they don't care. You talk about some super spiritual experience they had, and everybody's all into it, and they want to hear all about it. You start talking about the history of the Bible. Of course, the Bible is written in history, a very boring you know, if you were to pick up a book, fiction or nonfiction, what kind of book are you going to read? Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a fiction book. The Bible is recorded in nonfiction, and people just sort of forget about those things. They, they want to they want they like fiction. God doesn't like fiction. I mean, in the sense that He wants it to be truth. Us to depend on the truth. So again, uh, He interpreted to mean that the biblical text itself is a dead letter barren of spiritual meaning along Kantian idealism again. So get that restriction of thought that Kant was so good at, that the progress of the imminent spirit. See, now, now they start talking about we are growing spiritually. Science is really showing how smart we are. At the same time, they want to get back to nature. You know, there's a, there's a lot of really uh, 
paradoxes here, but that's part of the whole romantic thinking. And paradoxes are okay because life is basically irrational. Say we're we're getting closer to nature. Nature is irrational. That's where the true spiritual meanings are. And so now uh, there's no meaning. Uh, there's no real thought that's going on here. Things is all about feeling. How you feel. And Schleiermacher is our guy that really does this. He wanted the interpreter to go out of himself. This is interesting. And transform himself into the author so that he can grasp the full immediacy of his mental processes into a holistic merging of the mind. So this is what's going on. Uh, that's not our job. Okay. Okay. Our job is to interpret the text, not to try to get into his mind. But see, that's part of the romantic idea. We're going to meld the mind, you know, like Spock used to do on Star Trek. By the way, you think about this is part of it. Spock is a good illustration, okay, because he uh, was a super Mr. Logic, right? But think about all of the irrational things that they did on planet Vulcan, all these ritualisms and all these strange things he did. Uh, the, the Vulcan mind meld, okay, and also the um, he would grab people by the shoulder and put them out. And, um, okay, that, that's an illustration of, of German theology and philosophy. So very logical on the one sense. On the other hand, very mystical on the other and they, they they welded those things together in their romanticism with their uh, they're putting all those things together without worrying about contradiction because life is basically contradictory anyway get used to it and they didn't realize the reason why things are appear to be contradictory is because we live in a fallen world the futility of it all if they would have got back to the Bible and realized that God told them all these things ahead of time they wouldn't have done all this so again, uh, he wanted to get out of himself. That's interesting. Uh, hermeneutics must go through language. He did admit that, which is good, but then uh, must transcend it to get to the true inner process of understanding. Of course, that's where we have all the problems. And I think you know, even Wayne talked about the text says this, but applications, that's a different story. See? And of course, his applications are wild. And I mean that literally as well. In his romanticism, he converted authors of text into spiritual artists. So he, ex- he, he presumed art was at the heart of what a man is. So he's going to turn all the peoples of the past into like an artist of some sort. Schleiermacher, very anti-Judaistic. Uh, F.C. Bauer quipped, none since Marcion had shown so much antipathy towards Judaism as Schleiermacher. He believed the more Jewish the biblical text, the less valuable it was. Wonderful. He believed Judaism had no connection to Christianity. Now here's a real problem. And this is going to become a. And this was dominated theological discussion in Germany all the way up to World War One, and even with regard to the Nazi uh, theologians as well. Kittel was another one of these guys. Grudemann was another. So this is at the heart of their thinking. They've separated the Jews from Christianity. Uh, he believed the early Christian community believed as a coming earthly messianic kingdom was a childish form of religion, the very last fruits of Judaism. Andy. So again, this is for you right there. You have a very childish faith. <laughs> which is a compliment. Isn't that what Jesus said, right? He believed Judaism was merely an antiquated, bloodthirsty religion of punishment and recompense instead of being a religion that challenges and educates people. So again, very liberal, you know, um, God is love and no judgment. He wanted to de-Judaize the Bible away from backwardness, particularism, legalism, judgmentalism, and the heteronymous. There's that heteronymous again, the idea other law, it, it, it rules over us in contrast to the progressive, scientific, open-minded, autonomous, and free. So you can see his his thinking, what's going on here. And then we have Hegel, okay, and he shows up, okay, and Schleiermacher actually brought Hegel into his Berlin University, hired him. And Hegel is very romantic too. 
that he, he loved Schelling, who was a romantic. He loved Goethe. But he's going to mix everything all together into like a mishmash of everything. So he'll take Kant, idealism. He'll take the deist, and he'll take the pantheist. He'll take the romantics and mush them all together into his philosophy of history, which encompasses everything. Uh, interesting, uh, Hegel, or he graduated to Bingen in 1793. And after serving in both uh, Jena and Bern universities, became philosophy professor at the University of Berlin from 1818 to 1830, thanks to Schlermacher's help. And by the way, Berlin University was a romantic school. It was established by Humboldt, who was a famous romantic scholar. So all these guys are together in Berlin University at the very foundations of uh, what we call the romantic movement. Hegel combined Kantian idealism, romanticism, Schlermacher, Schelling. You can see a lot of Schlermacher's ideas also in, in Hegel too. Uh, also the new thing called historicism. And what we mean by historicism is that historicism emphasizes here that people are children of their own times. And here's the point, that man is merely a historical being. He's not an eternal one made in God's image. So you want to understand somebody, you look at strictly at their, you know, the history of their own times. People are children of their own times. And they kind of, you know, this helps us understand why we are so, we're, we're progressing too. People of the past are childish, but we've gone beyond it. So historicism includes an idea of progress. And the very idea when you start calling people, they're just children of their own times. They don't understand that people are also made in God's image, that they can transcend history. And some of the same philosophical and theological problems they had back in Plato's day or Jeremiah's day, they still have today too. So we haven't really progressed much. But historicists really deny that. They try to make people of their own times, and that's it. It also relativizes the truth too, right? Because truth is just something relative to your own time, and that's how they viewed things. So that's something new that Hegel will add on top of this other stuff that gets mixed into his whole, what we call now, a philosophy of history. So now he's going to take uh, all this stuff, this philosophy, this religious stuff, and then combine it into a philosophy of history. And then he's going to put Germany on top of that philosophical history in terms of how smart they are at the end of the day. And his philosophy represents the best of what Germany provides, Germany provides at that time. So again, uh, a progressive view of history borrowed from the Bible, very eschatological. We have history going toward a goal that's borrowed from the Bible. But now instead of emphasizing the Jewish kingdom, it's all about the Germans and what they're doing with their natural theology. So what we have is a, a really a counterfeit, a religious operation going working against the Judeo-Christian worldview. It has its eschatology. It has its metaphysics, whatever that is. It has its mysticism, okay. And yet it stands opposed to the biblical worldview. And they're just uh, adding to this, and they just really love what they're doing here. Um, Hegel identified King uh, Kant's thing in itself as a world spirit or reason. So by that he means that the world spirit, he you know he spiritualized a lot of things, and that imminently and providentially works behind history to advance mankind into a greater and greater synthesis. So again, there's that holism in his thought, synthesis of antithetical movements. So uh, people grow through antinomies. You know we we have a antithetical oppositions, all right? They block horns, and then uh, the result after they get done fighting is that we have a synthesis, a man progresses. So this is what he's going to be his view. So we have all these different views of the past, philosophically, religiously, idealism, romanticism, whatever it may be, and then he put, pushes them all together as an, their antinomy, leads to synthesis, we're getting smarter and better. That's basically his philosophy of history. So now we have this idea of history on top of everything else. So again, things are getting compounded, we're, we're, we're actually it's a snowball going down the mountain here and it's getting worse and worse 
Hegel believed every culture, religion, philosophy contributed to the growth of the world spirit except for the Jews. Okay, except for them. Okay, we'll take a look at this. This, this shows up very interesting with Wellhausen. Hegel's progressive philosophy of history was later used by German higher critics to attack the historicity of the Bible. They're going to use this philosophy of history to reconstruct Bible history. See, the deists, they merely doubted the historicity of the Bible. What's going to happen with people who followed Hegel is that they're going to use Hegel's philosophy of history to reconstruct it. So you doubt it, first of all, then you get to reconstruct it the way you want to see it. And they will reconstruct it according to Hegel's evolutionary view here. See. How does this work? Well, let's take a look at Bauer. 1792 to 1860, he was a leader of the Benjamin School of Radical Higher Criticism that not only attacked the historicity of the New Testament, but also reconstructed it. Bauer was a devoted Hegelian who borrowed much from Schleiermacher's natural theology. He loved Schleiermacher. Everybody did. And then what he's going to do, he's going to use Hegel's philosophy of history to reconstruct the Gospels. That's going to be Bauer. Or that's going to be Strauss. He will use it to reconstruct the New Testament. He wrote a book entitled, Notice Here, the Paul, the Apostle of Jesus Christ, that sharply distinguished Peter's Jewish understanding of Christianity from Paul's Gentile orientation along Hegelian lines. So what we have is an opposition. There was a fight in Antioch between Paul and Peter, right? Everybody knows the story. So we have Jewish gospel from Peter. We have the Paul gospel of grace with the Gentiles. And of course, what happened is that they locked horns with each other. And the development that happened after that was what we call the early Catholic Church. So, I mean, this is a Hegelian view. They superimpose it over the Bible, of course. Got away with it. Everybody fell for it. It's just foolishness. I mean, this is not how real history works. Not even close. But it dominated their thinking. And he was very, very Hegelian. There was a lot of debates that he wasn't really Hegelian, but uh, Horton Harris has pretty well put that to rest. He was a committed Hegelian. So his idea is that the New Testament was not really the way it happened. Uh, most of the New Testament was written later with the early Catholicism. So it happened like in the second century rather than the first century. So that was his, uh, con you know, to historical criticism. Interesting enough, J.B. Lightfoot, Sir William Ramsey will put that to rest very quickly. But they don't get credit for it. But they put it to rest very quickly. Uh, Lightfoot, <coughs> my voice is going here. Lightfoot was an Anglican scholar who became the Bishop of Durham. Probably the most uh, significant, most important, the most well uh knowledgeable person of church history. And he realized, he heard all this stuff coming out of Germany, he realized, look at, uh, I can date a couple of books here, Ignatius and Clement, and I can date them back to the first century, basically. And they, these guys are quoting, they're alluding to the entire New Testament, so therefore, the New Testament has to be written before the, you know, before the end of the first century. So that's what Lightfoot is able to establish, two dates on Ignatius and Clement, which really ruined Bauer's theory. And then Sir William Ramsey, who actually was in Tubingen and learned this German radical of criticism, he goes there, decides to go on an archaeological expedition to Turkey, spends many years researching the book of Luke and, and what happened in Turkey and the book of Acts. When he got done, he said Luke was the best historian that's ever lived in the, the ancient world. So Sir William, one of his main arguments was the reason why is because uh, Luke used first century names. Yeah. So there's no way that it can be second, third century because he used all these first century names. So anyway, uh, Bauer's theory was displaced right away, quickly. And then um, I want to say, where's Harnack here? Anyway, Harnack actually ad ad admitted that J.B. Lightfoot was real, that what he said was true, and we'll take a look at Harnack a little bit later.
Now here we have Wellhausen. He's a famous scholar. The JEPD theory, right? You've heard about this. Um, <clears throat> okay. Now this is a more complicated view of Hegelian history. At this point, Hegel's philosophy of history, people are starting to doubt a little bit. Bauer just got displaced. So now they're thinking about this more scientifically, at least in their minds. But notice it's still a synthesis. So now instead of like a triad where we have, you know, thesis, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, now we have a lot of things going on here. We have a kind of a complex synthesis. So what he did is that um, his JEPD theory was developed in 1878 to explain the origins of the Old Testament. So he's going to reconstruct the Old Testament. So Bauer reconstructed the New Testament. Strauss reconstructed the Gospels. Now he's going to reconstruct the Old Testament. I remember the J that stands for Yahweh, right? And this dates to the time of Solomon. So any any verses in the Bible, the Old Testament deal with Yahweh that has the name on it, that goes back to a different time. And that was not, you know, the Pentateuch, for example, the Old Testament, uh, the first five books of Moses were not written at that time, but they were written by different people at different times, which were later put together. And what they're trying to say is that really the first five books of Moses uh, were, um, yeah, okay, you're right. First five books of Moses were not written until later. So Wellhausen studied under Ewald, but attributes his JEPD theory to romantic and nationalist theologian uh, DeWitt. DeWitt characterized Judaism as a degenerate that evolved from the pure and simple original Hebrewism into a de- to legalism under Deuteronomy. So what they're doing, they, they turn everything upside down, and Deuteronomy becomes a very legalistic book in their minds. It was written last. So what happens in Jewish history is actually a romantic view of history to where uh, things get worse in, in Judaism started out very pure and simple, very spiritual, and then with Deuteronomy, it gets worse. It becomes legalistic, which is part of the whole discussion that Schumacher had. So again, Wellhausen's theory, again, just sort of a more complicated uh, Hegelian view. And here we see they put together their different sources, reconstructed the Old Testament according to his own evolutionary view of history. And then we have theological liberalism, anti-Semitic progressive social gospel. This is going to follow up you know, the, the Jews are particularistic, they're segregated, they don't really belong to our progressive social gospel. So they you know, they were quietly excluding the Jewish people from this too. So this was going on uh, from, you know, 1850 to, to the First World War. So we have that process. So the social gospel, again, Jews are not a part of it. Uh, and, uh, you know, very, um, maybe not as anti-Semitic as it does become under the secular folks, but still it was not good. They're trying to de-Judaize the Bible, which is precisely what they were doing. Adolf Harnock in particular, he's really the ultimate representative of what we call uh, theological liberalism. He died in 1930, and basically he said the same thing, the Old Testament has no relevance to Christianity. And this, this was his view. By the way, he wrote the war speech that kicked off World War I. Very nationalistic. And when Barth saw that, Karl Barth, he saw uh, that these, and a lot of the theologians, they were called liberals, that followed him into the war. And there's a lot of real problems here because these men were, uh, they were really rabid about this war. And in part, Bart realized these guys really aren't liberals after all. Okay. And who did he blame? Schlermacher. And Schlermacher is a romantic. See. So really, theological liberalism is theological romanticism, and it died in the trench warfare of World War I because people's respect for progress really died after World War I. It was not as strong as it was. And then this nature-based <coughs> existentialist bridge to postmodernism and romanticism really is going to start with uh, 
what's going to happen is that theological romanticism dies in the trench warfare of World War One, and then what's going to replace it? Secular romanticism and existential, which is actually worse. Now there's no reference to God at all, and this is going to help ramp up the whole Nazi enterprise. So uh, the the do-gooder stuff uh, out of theological liberalism will die in the trench warfare of World War One, and then this stuff will replace it. And now we have a godless existentialism. We have a godless romanticism that really develops into what we call the really anti-Semitic in a really bad way. It becomes wild, completely wild. And then we have Heidegger. He's going to be the guy that really, uh, he's even wilder than anybody else. And by the way, probably the most important philosopher of the 20th century. And he develops what we call postmodernism. So we go from romanticism to existentialism, which is a hardened form of romanticism. We have a romance with nature. That's too girlish. So they hardened it with existentialism. And then at the top, at the end of it, we have postmodernism. And now his postmodernism really emphasizes, uh, really controls our thought today. And he's at the heart of, he's the father. And he, by the way, is a big Nazi. This is not true that he, he, he was a Nazi. Interesting, give you some uh, comfort here. Schopenhauer, who is also an existentialist and, uh, and um, he was right before Nietzsche. And then of course, Heidegger borrowed much from his thought. There's not a grain of dust, not an atom that can become nothing, yet man believes that death is annihilation of his being. So you notice here, uh, <laughs> we're just a piece of dust, of course. That's how they viewed things. You know, and uh, there's no idea that man is a spiritual being. See, it's all gone. It's all gone. Yeah. And then Heidegger, his hermeneutics, and uh, his fascist violence against the text. He actually used the word violence. So I, I don't have time to develop that. But it's in the paper. Postmodern hermeneutics here. We have um, a lot of things going on here, but here's their very complicated compared to Schlermacher. But basically, all their ideas are up here, and these things dominate the text. See, it's what, what they believe up here. And what we have today is postmodern madness. Why are things so irrational? Well, there's a whole story behind it, and a lot of it really is rooted in Germany. Okay, so we're out of time. So it took longer than I thought. Uh, I had a 72-page paper. I reduced it down as much as I could. So we are... Are we done? Okay, a couple questions here. I'm sorry for raging through the last few slides here. I've got, I've got one back here, Tommy. Yeah I, yeah, I did an article a number of years ago in Bibsack on the earth dwellers in the book Hello. of Revelation. Okay. And when you study the book of Revelation, there's a lot about the earth, and unbelievers are focused on the earth. Yeah. How would you fit all of that into this with the pantheism, with the paganism? It, it seems to me that the uh, that form of Christianity, in other words, back yeah. to Baalism, because uh, the term earth dwellers is derived from... Isaiah 24 through 27, uh, where it talks about a global government uh, judgment of the earth and all of this, and those who dwell upon the earth. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, do you have any comments on that? Well, I, I, there's uh, no question. In light of this. There's no question that you know, these guys have laid the groundwork for this pagan natural theology, which is dominating our, our discussions today. And uh, you know, So do you think that that could be the final form of the apostasy, so to speak, or where men are at, uh, it, it seems some to be, form of nature worship, obviously. Yeah, it, cer it certainly seems to be that way, as we have 
left God out of the picture, we become more, you know, into nature, and God's no longer part of our lives, and we just now dwell upon. In fact, people call for the mountains to come down upon them, to to uh, come down upon them, to protect them from the wrath of God. I mean, they're so tied in with nature, there's no longer any uh, asking God for help. So now they want the nature to protect them. And by the way, that's also a quotation in the book of Hosea. Hosea is all about Baalism. You know, the, the rocks come down and fall upon me, the earth dwellers, all that kind of discussion, Revelation 6, other places. But, uh, you know, that's all discussed in the in the book of uh, Hosea. And there's a lot of discussion about Baalism and nature worship and idolatry in the book of Hosea. And I think that can be brought up to date, which is what John does in the book of Revelation. He brings up that whole Baalist discussion up into the future. And I think philosophically these things are, are you know, these have already been laid, the groundwork for it's already been laid. You know, it's it's already there. So that, that would be my interpretation, yes. Yeah. Um, what was the German, you, you were saying um, the German thought, what, what was the church's stand? Um, were they buying into this in Nazi Germany or well, where were they? We're talking about primarily before uh, Nazi Germany. You know, what helped lead up to that whole discussion? And a lot of the... Um, Initially, the conservative Christians were there standing against this stuff, but they didn't really last very long because a lot of these churches are they're kind of dead. You know, there's a lot of dead orthodoxy, a lot of legalism, and these men quickly replaced. Um, you know, they became the most important people. The, the theological liberals, the theological romantics, they ran the theology department in Germany for 50, 60, 70 years, right up until World War One. And again, they were trying to dejudify the Bible at, at the same time. So very anti-Semitic process. And then when they died. When that whole element died in World War One, and a lot of people died in World War One that would have held those views, uh, after it came out of World War One, uh, that idea of progress sort of kind of collapsed with it. And then what happened is that we have secularity dominates the whole discussion now. All the do-gooder stuff is over. The progressive do-gooder stuff dies in trench world for World War One, and now we're left with this romanticism and this secular, godless stuff that was really deadly and lethal. So um, one more question. Um, are these thoughts cyclic or are they just progressive? Well, I'm sure yeah, to some extent, yeah, they probably are cyclical. Uh, it's a good good, good question. I really can't answer that. I know that they're still around. They, they just get recycled. Yes, to some extent. All right, Mark, thank you very much. We'd like to have... Thank you, yeah. I'd like to take time for more questions, but Mark did such a thorough job. Really appreciate it. We're off to a, a roaring start here. Uh, you're on your own for the evening meal, and we are starting promptly at 7.30. I would be here just a little bit early. Uh, look forward to seeing you back. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Great start. <laughs>